0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by David Brooks, who is very well known as the New York Times columnist, and whose new book is called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. We need more of that these days. David, welcome. Can you start by... Telling me, what are these two mountains that you describe? I mean, what's the sort of governing yeah, metaphor of your book? It's a
1: bit of a narrative device. It's really two moral systems. But if you want to stick with a narrative, you get out of school and you think there's a mountain you're going to climb. You're going to be a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor. You're thinking a lot about your career, whether you're going to be a success. You're thinking a lot about reputation management. Are people like me? Do people think well of me? Am I popular? And you're driven by the normal desires of the ego to make a difference in the world and to see for people to see who you are and think well of you. And so you climb that mountain and some people achieve success and then they find inevitably it's less satisfying than they thought it would be, and that was the case in my life. Or they fail and they're not on the mountain. Or something happens that wasn't part of the original plan, so they get a cancer scare or the loss of a child or something, which make the first mountain desires seem trivial. And so they're down in the valley, and all of us spend some season in the valley. And in the valley, they sink into themselves and discover deeper parts of themselves than they ever knew when they were living out of their ego. And they realize they're li- ready for a bigger and more larger life. And so they launch off on a second mountain, which is more about contribution, less about acquisition. It's less elitist. It's less about trying to climb up. It's more about trying to serve more. It's really finding some way to give yourself away.
0: Alright, You describe some beatific people you, you've encountered in your travels, particularly in 2018, who were, you know, second mountain people yeah. who are well-ensconced maybe not at the top of that mountain, but in the centre of it, or wherever the special metaphor takes us. In the foothills. In the foothills. What sort of proportion of people actually, you know, ever arrive at a second mountain life? I mean, because presumably a lot of people just go up the first mountain and sort of stay there, and maybe they're not very happy, but... You know, is it is it an ordinary part of every human life or is it a, a sort of state of enlightenment? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, there
1: are two things to say. For, most people are formed by adversity in some form. I was with the, having breakfast with a 94-year-old recently and he said, yeah, my life has been defined by the worst moments of my life. And when you ask people what made you who you are, nobody ever says, oh, I had a fantastic vacation in Hawaii. Like, that's never the experience that made you who you are. When when you talk about People ask what made you who you are. It's usually a moment of struggle and adversity and usually sinking deeper into yourself. You know, I don't want to get carried away by the narrative. It's really two moral systems One is the system of the individualistic meritocracy, which is the surface system of our moral ecology. And then there's a deeper system, which is a a system based on living in right relationship with others and serving some transcendent good. So it's connection and service. Right. And 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 in my view, we, we all get sucked up in the game of the meritocracy, which causes us to believe certain lies, that success can make you happy, that life is an individual journey, that people who are smarter and achieve more are worth more than others. And so we've developed a highly cancerous culture.
0: And I, I'm curious as to the sense of what sort of book this is. I mean, is it a self-help book? It is, is it as in part of spiritual autobiography? Is it a book of theology or philosophy? What, how do you conceive of it?
1: Yeah, all. Yes. The answer is yes. Basically, it, what happened to me, and that mentioned the moment of solitude, ha- happens, is happening to a lot of people around the Western world. And so there's a crisis of disconnection around the Western world where people are lonely, where suicide rates are rising, depression rates are so you rising. You talk about the death from despair. Death of and despair. And, then our, and as a result, when people are naked and alone, they turn tribal. They revert to tribe. And as a result, our politics are tribal. And I just have a ba- basic confidence that we'll figure stuff out. The The basic disease of people in my business of, who write nonfiction is we're always too pessimistic. It's always the end of something, the death S- of something. Except Stephen Pinker. Yeah, right. Well, he's a corrective. <laughs> the problem with his book, he's got a book on how everything's getting better. He's got no sociological data in there. There's no relational data. Everything, a lot of things are getting better, like less violence, but the relationship between people are not, definitely not getting better.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're a conservative. I mean, a Burkean conservative rather than a kind of Friedmanite, right. red in tooth and claw conservative. Right. But I'm wondering what the implications of your shift in thinking from individualism to this kind of collectivism, you know, emphasis on love and the numinous. I mean, that must have some impact on your view of political economy.
1: It does. It's moved me a little left economically and right socially. And so I think I've gone where Cameron's big society would have gone if it had ever gone anywhere. And so I'm much more aware of how capitalism unchecked rips at the fabric of society. I mean, it is supposed to be creative destruction, and we celebrate the dynamism. But you've got to have a a culture that balances out, which if capitalism is about individual competition and speed, you've got to have a culture that protects communal cooperation and stability. And we don't have that counterbalance to capitalism. So I'm much more willing to use the state to try to redress the widening inequality and all that stuff. And how
0: would you do that? Would you do that with things like taxes? I mean, I'm wondering at which point the, if you like, intellectual, you know, first mountain points of principle, the philosophical principles, a lot of which, you know, have to do with individual property rights and private freedoms. Right you know, are there not hard borders at which they don't map perfectly onto what you're describing, which is to do with systems of connection
1: and, you know, for example, telling kids
0: how to behave a little more than...
1: Yeah, so that would be where my social conservatism is coming up. But I do think it's hard to have deep relation and a sense of moral cohesion when you're living in two different societies, two different classes. The widening class structure really does weaken any sense that we're all part of one nation. And so when you get economic disparities. To this degree, I think you're weakening relationship, you're weakening community, you're weakening nation, and you're weakening the bonds between people. So, you know, I, would, I now support things like wage subsidies, massive child tax credits to give poorer families a basic substance income. I'm much more, and I found- Would you go I, as
0: far as the Green New Deal?
1: <laughs> not that far. You're, you're taking it too far for me. But, you know, somebody pointed out recently that we've had this argument between the state and the market- but if you look at the say the Scandinavian countries which have very generous welfare states they have extremely free markets and they need free markets in order to pay for those welfare states. So the debate we've been having for the last 50 or 70 years is somewhat bogus. You can have free markets and generous welfare states at the same time.
0: Now you talk about kind of four areas of life in which you know second mountain principles yeah. apply and the first one's vocational work there's you know marriage there's you know philosophy or religious commitment and then there's community right now I want you to talk a bit about your own experience with because one of the things you really talk about is commitment and right. this idea and you know you, in a way as you were quite explicit in the book you say there's two aspects of this you know marriage you had a long marriage that didn't work out right and you had this spiritual journey you know
1: you've converted as I understand it from Judaism to Christianity oh, yeah. Ish, yeah, Ish. I call them myself religiously bisexual. That's when my yes, you religiously,
0: <laughs> religiously bisexual. I mean, was it the sort of difficulty of carrying through those first two commitments that gave you commitments in those two areas that gave you, if you like, I figured out
1: how to do it this time. Yeah. Well, certainly, one of the things when I got divorced, all my married friends were projecting their fantasies onto me. And they were like, oh, you should become a wild swinger and you should go around the country. It's like, nah, A, that's not me. B, I I learned that freedom sucks. Like political freedom is good and economic freedom is pretty good. But social freedom, keeping your options open, is no good. You're just living on a shallow level. You're unremembered. You're not really adding up to anything. So when I was lonely, I felt the, the answer to that was I really have to live a life of commitment. When I look at the people on the first mountain, they're operating by a utilitarian ethos, which is let's keep my optionals open. Let, let me have pre- freedom, of res- freedom from restraint. I just want to be flexible. But people who are re- really living out of their heart and soul, who've gone through this moral transformation, they really plant themselves down. And sometimes it's in a town. I met a woman from North Carolina, a little small town. She couldn't wait to get out of there when she was a kid, but she was drawn back. And it's called, uh, and I'm forgetting the name of it, Wilkesboro. And she says, I belong to Wilkesboro. Wilkesboro owns me. And so whatever she's going to do in her life, she's going to do what's best for Wilkesboro. And for her decision-making is easy because she knows where her ultimate allegiance lies. She just loves this place so much and the, the people in it. And so she is really committed. And the people I find who are most joyous are the ones who've made their commitments maximal commitments they are they've just thrown themselves away for a town for a philosophy for a political cause for a marriage for their kids, and they're living to serve those other things and when you live that way, paradoxically the crown of your life is joy yeah but
0: I mean you you know in your own case you planted yourself down and have since transplanted yourself right I mean do you feel you would be more joyous had you if you like doubled down on those previous commitments yeah I mean
1: you know, maybe it's hard to know to go back. I didn't, I didn't have the the equipment. <laughs> I had to go through that valley. I think to be broken open, to be ready. And you know, you I was living the life the culture wants us to live, which is a life of you know career success and and reputation management, and it's a life of high productivity. And so I think I had to go to the through the valley to sort of smash the ego and and to say well, how am I going to tie myself down and so now I have it's still a very incomplete journey but I'm married again in a very happy marriage I'm committed there's a community in Washington DC of young people that I'm committed to and I'm with there's, it's your weave right well there's movie. a community called AOK which is about 40 kids in DC okay, and then, and then I've it. got something called the weave project where we're trying to mobilize community builders from all around the country that's something else I've tried to throw myself into so I've tried to plant myself down and it's Uh, incomplete process, but it was making progress until I went on book tour, and now all I think about is (laughs) selling myself and selling Selling myself. So this is a morally corrupting (laughs) exercise.
0: Can I also ask, I mean, you you have a long and very impassioned chapter about marriage and this as the sort of pinnacle of human fulfillment in terms of this relational thing. I'm wondering, how would you respond to people who say, well, that's fine for you to say, but we live... In a polyamorous way, yeah. or we have, you know, even a polygamous way. Right. You know, this is a, you know, whatever, Western, Christian, Christio-heteronormative, right. um, you know. I mean, are, are you confident that that's literally the best way yeah. anyone can live, that there know, aren't other ways of doing it? I don't it? want
1: to be say there's one universal answer to human life mysteries. I do think in commitments generally... And however you want to define that, I do think the commitments call you, call you out into a better way of life. And not everybody's going to have all four commitments, but for me and for a lot of people anyway, marriage is just a very hard school, and it's a school that imp- makes you become a better person. You get married, and then about two years into marriage, you realize the person you married, who you thought was completely perfect, is actually kind of selfish. And as you're making that decision about her, she's making that realization about you, and I think Alain De Botton has a line: until you get married, you can live with the illusion that you're easy to live with, and then after you, that illusion goes away because someone is watching you all the time, and so you have a decision to make.
0: <laughs> yes, you say something about, oh, there is no no more complete form of surveillance yet realized. Yeah, do you yeah
1: right. No, and and I've started noticing myself, like even trivial stuff, like I apparently lead the leave all the cupboards open. I get a cup out of the cupboard. I leave the door open. I always leave the door open. And since being married, I realized, oh, I really do that because I never noticed that when I was alone. And so you're being surveyed and you can either think, well, her selfishness is really the problem here, in which case you're going to have a bad marriage. <laughs> if you think the other person's selfishness is the core problem, you have to decide, well, my selfishness is the only selfishness I can control. So that's the core problem here. And if you have two people in a relationship that think their own selfishness is the core problem, then you have the makings of a good relationship. But it, it involve, living with another human being involves that level of self-awareness and hopefully trying to correct your behavior. And then just the normal tricks that you use to try to keep the marriage going and healthier, and I repeat a bunch of the tricks I've read from others. One of them is they say in, if you're in a relationship, never go to get bed mad. Well, sometimes it's best just to go to bed. You're tired, you'll make waffles in the morning, you'll feel better another trip i got was if you're thinking of bitching to your to someone about your spouse bitch to his mom and not yours because his mom will forgive him but your mom never will and so there's <laughs> yes, just, these, just little things that they're like life relationships take skill and you got to learn the skills
0: finally i, I suppose i should just ask. you know you've alluded to the current state of your your benighted nation. <laughs> i mean would you say the President you've now got is kind of a First Mountain person.
1: <laughs> I would say he's a parody of a First Mountain person. <laughs> I mean, financial success, narcissism, ego, extremely shallow. He's made himself un... It's impossible to love the guy. I think for even for people around him, he's, he's impenetrable. And so he's, he's almost a cartoon version of the First Mountain type, the egocentric type. And so I'm hoping we'll have a moral rebellion against that and swing the other way.
0: Or would there be a national catharsis if we saw him... Go into the wilderness and become a second mother. Yeah, I think that's not likely.
1: They say a lot of psychological ailments can be cured, but there's no cure for narcissism. So it could happen, you know. I, I believe in redemption, but I wouldn't bank my money on it. Very good.
0: David Brooks, thank you very much
1: for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't feel don't really you have to review it and equally if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode